0: Ave Maria Press has been publishing Catholic books and resources for more than 150 years, and they are located right on the north side of the Notre Dame campus. Visit their website, avemariapress.com, for a wide selection of Catholic books, podcasts, videos, and free downloadable content. Receive 25% off your next order with code REDEEMER.
1: Church Life Today is brought to you
0: in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and our listeners. The sin of racism disfigures and hides the truth of the human person. The healthy response to sin is conversion, and conversion begins with begging the Lord for healing. That healing, though, provokes and necessitates change. My guest today is committed to helping to develop a Catholic response to the sin of racism along these very lines. Gloria Purvis is well known in Catholic media in her capacities as radio host, TV series host and creator, and now as the host of the Gloria Purvis podcast from America Media. Gloria was recently named as the inaugural pastoral fellow of the Notre Dame Office of Life and Human Dignity in the McGrath Institute for Church Life. Through this fellowship, she will develop resources for classroom teachers, co-create an online course addressing the theology of racial justice, deliver two public lectures on Notre Dame's campus, and facilitate a workshop series for pastoral leaders, equipping them for dialogue and engagement on issues of social justice. Today, she joins me to follow up especially on her first public lecture as part of her fellowship which bore the title, Racial Justice, Solidarity, and the Church's Call to Action. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life and the Spoke Street Media Network. I'm glad you're here. Gloria, welcome back to the show.
1: Lenny, I'm so glad to be back. So thank you for having me again.
0: My pleasure. Gloria, the last time that you joined me as a guest on Church Life Today, we talked about the sin of racism. Yeah. So in fact, we started that conversation from your comment at that point recently that racism, you said, is demonic. Mm -hmm. So as we talk this time, you're beginning this pastoral fellowship with the Notre Dame Office of Life and Human Dignity to help establish a truly Catholic response to the sin of racism. So Mm -hmm. it occurred to me that from our last conversation to this one, you're moving from diagnosis, racism as sin, demonic, to the prescription, like actually responding to that in this pastoral way. So I want to start off by asking you, what do you think characterizes or we might say is essential to a truly Catholic response to racism?
1: Well, I think remembering who we are, right? We're all made in the image and likeness of God. And racism is a rebellion against God's plan for the human family. And if we remember that in a Catholic response, I think it sets it properly, that it sets us that we're trying to reestablish right relationships among all of us. And in that, we have to do some deprogramming. I like to say it's more like a Mm. psychological exorcism. You know what I mean? In that we have been programmed in a certain way, culturally, historically, and whatnot, to fail to see who we really are to fail to see ourselves as family, to fail to see the beauty in the human family and all its diversity, right? That you've got the African, the Asian, the Caucasian, the Native American, all of these things, right? And we may have different ways that we speak, talk, eat, dance, music, whatever. And there's that beauty in that and that we are all just have this commonality. And, you know, sometimes people will talk about colorblindness and is the key and i'm like but who would want to go into a garden and not see all the colors of the beautiful flowers <laughs> right all right and if we realize that humanity is god made us we are his garden you know with all these colorful beautiful flowers with long stems or short stems or curly flowers or straight <laughs> flowers straight hair <laughs> flowers or you know and if we could just be in like a awe mm. of god's creativity right? I hope that we can maybe, you know, come back to that and really, you know, meditate on that. Why is it that God made us this way? What is to be gleaned about who God is in looking at us as children?
0: I love this term you used, which I haven't heard, the psychological exorcism. It's because it's my
1: makeup. I you made, made it up. I yeah, because I just, that's what I think of it as, yeah.
0: Well, I mean, to think of an exorcism, it's the driving out of an evil spirit, right? Yeah. So, if there's a psychological exorcism here, I mean, we could say it's Christ who drives that. Yes. yes, it's the gospel that drives out. But yes, how you know how is that evil psychological spirit this this reprogramming? How do you think? What are some of these steps to pushing that out? It has to be replaced with something, mm-hmm. I imagine.
1: Mm-hmm. So prayer. Okay, mm. we have to. You have to ask God to come in and show you your brokenness. And you got to mean it when you say these prayers, because he wants us to be holy. He wants us to live with him for eternity in heaven. But we got to want that too. Hmm. And a part of wanting that is to want this conversion. And to want conversion, you need to ask the Lord to really show you, Lord, where am I broken in this? Lord, really guide me, walk with me, purify me, and mean that. But that also has to come from a place of trust. And I think you have trust when you have relationship with God, right? And so I think it starts there and that prayer and that trust and that asking the Lord to show you. And to me, it's funny, at least for me, the way the Lord sometimes does it. Sometimes he'll speak, then I'll hear him. Sometimes he'll send me people that will say particular things to me that I know is him talking through them. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's, when I read scripture, there are particular things in the scripture that speak to a question that I'd been asking him, or even in the reading of the saints. There's just some way that he will have you get the answer to what you're seeking, I think. I um, mean, he does it in ways that are particular to each person. So those are some of the ways he's he's done it with me. And also when I meditate, right? So doing meditation that he I believe guides me to certain things to consider, and so yeah, I, I and I, I really believe the Lord will help anyone who wants to come out of sin. And as Catholics, for us also to have the sacraments, my gosh, we really, we just have, we just, I think as Catholics, we really need to, oh, just be so thankful for the sacrament of reconciliation. I mean. I think about that and I'm like, God is so generous and so good to us that we could come and confess our brokenness, our sinfulness, our inclination toward evil. You know, I don't mm-hmm. know what I'm saying. And, and say, I'm sorry, Lord, I'm so sorry. And Lord, help me. You know, with your grace, Lord, help me. Help me amend my life. And we begin again.
0: Amen. I suppose one of the ways we... Maybe the primary way we obstruct this exorcism then is the unwillingness to admit even the possibility that we might be wrong, yeah that i have <laughs> that I have sinned, I am at fault, that we have sinned, we are at fault, yeah, and it seems that when racism, especially as it becomes systemic, it becomes widespread, it takes over sort of the ways of thinking of a generation of a mm-hmm. culture, yeah that's part of the defense mechanism is saying no. Actually, there may be something wrong, but it's not wrong with me. It's not wrong with us.
1: Yeah, Yeah, that's a deception.
0: So I'm thinking about what you're saying here about confession, and there seems to be almost like a characteristic Catholic impulse to err on the side of saying, I may be wrong. In fact, I am wrong through my fault. I'm wondering then, does this show us something that the Catholic faith, the church might have to add to the broader society in terms of developing the right kind of disposition or posture for this kind of exorcism, conversion, as you put it.
1: Gosh, I think actually the Catholic Church, then to do that, has to compete against so many voices, secular and Catholic, you know, who will say, you're never to say you're sorry. You're never mm-hmm. to admit this thing. Um, and they come at this from a place of pride, And also wanting to retain whatever they think their standing is. Hmm. And I'm like, that is so foolish. Because humility, you can't go wrong being humble, okay? (laughs) You can never go wrong being humble. You can never go wrong, I think, being sincere and trying to listen for understanding, You may not agree, but the only way you know you really don't agree is that you is if you listen first. Mm -hmm. Right. And admit that there's a possibility that someone else has a truth, the truth and can share it with you in a way you had not seen it. Right. But never. Now, let me just make this clear, because I think sometimes people uh, misunderstand this. I don't believe there can be a truth that is contrary to what God has revealed as true and good for us as human persons. I just, so that is the measure by which you, when you interact with someone, Mm -hmm. you need to filter this through. What does this tell me about the human person vis-a-vis what I know God has revealed, what God has planned for us? And that is the filter. And sometimes the way people frame things, you have to take a moment to think about that. But the idea that you can never apologize, you can never perhaps be wrong on something, I think is is dangerous, mm-hmm. right? And how do we get from that? Prayer. And again, I think sometimes the more you actually learn about what the church teaches, the more you realize you don't know things. <laughs> <laughs> is that the truth? But I also think yeah. people have to really contend with history. They don't want to have a historical memory. And I think once you start to see, read, hear, all of these things, things start to open up for you, mm-hmm. but not in a way to make you feel bad, but in a way to maybe help you see the truth of how the human family has been damaged. And one of the things that I hope people also remember that sin is chiefly an offense against God. And part of doing this is because if we love God and we know we've offended him, we'd want to make right by that. So...
0: Indeed. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life today on the Spoke Street Media Network. I'm joined today by Gloria Purvis, host of the Gloria Purvis podcast from America Media and the inaugural pastoral fellow of the Notre Dame Office of Life and Human Dignity, which is housed in the McGrath Institute for Church Life. You offered, speaking of this fellowship, um, you offered a lecture at the beginning of this fellowship just yeah. during this visit to Notre Dame. Yeah. And the title of the lecture was racial justice followed by solidarity and the church's response. Yeah. I'm caught just by the title, which doesn't seem like it should be contentious, but it <laughs> is, it can be contentious, right? Yeah. Like even yeah. this term racial justice, oh, or yeah. we might take on its kindred term social justice. Yeah, They've come under critique because of a, I don't know, perceived complicity with what are suspected to be aggressively secular anti-religious movements. Sure. right? How do you respond to especially Christians who level those kinds of critiques?
1: So, I often wonder when they say that. So we talk about needing justice, but justice isn't kumbaya. It's got to be <laughs> have concrete effects in the real world. So in areas of law, medicine, business, military, when people examine where there has been injustice and how do we make things just, they're going to have remedies that use the language of those mediums. So you're not going to see a law cases that's strictly where arguments are made in front of the judge that are strictly in the language of Catholic theology. You know what I mean? Yeah. You just, you have to talk in in the specifics of the law. I don't believe that these movements necessarily have to be aggressively anti-Christian, and I think it's an unfair charge mm. to make. And I would also then say to those people, well, what is your area of specialty? How are you as a Catholic involved in these justice movements to make sure that they come through the light of our faith and the proper understanding of justice, mm-hmm. right? And I, you know, I think about justice, giving a person what they are due, justice- and rights rights never running counter to the nature of a thing. All of those things we can come to bear in the conversation. And I think people, what people don't like is that, yeah, this is going to require some change. It has been wild to me that people think about the civil rights movement and still kind of say, oh, it's just nonviolent and kumbaya. And I was like, no, there needed to be real change to American society, right? And if you think about it, the people who were in positions in business and university and whatnot were the people who were in charge of making sure things were segregated. And it was kind of mind-blowing to me to realize these then were the same people that were in charge to make sure it's supposed to be desegregated. But then you find that this sort of resistance had arisen in these areas to change. And why should we be surprised, right? And so as a result of that, we still are having these conversations, which make people realize we are going to have to actually change from how it was to a newer vision. And what does that look like? So, yeah, of course, there could be some segments that are anti-Christian, but that doesn't mean they have to be the whole movement. And then where do you, I would say you kind of find that everywhere. It's in economics. It's in various fields. So, I mean, the idea that there is this anti-Christian element, therefore we throw the whole thing out, just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And it shouldn't, and we should be expecting in particular areas outside of the church that things are going to be spoken of maybe in a way that aren't God-based, I guess, but it's mm-hmm. going to be specific and technical in whatever area whether it's law, medicine, business, whatever. Can Cancer you work area.
0: with it, right? I once, yeah. Can I you once, work
1: with it? You say it best.
0: <laughs> I don't know if that's, yeah. I mean, I, th- I once do. heard, so, not in this context, but— this metaphor presented to me about sailing, which I don't do and don't know anything about sailing. But the <laughs> sailing. Look, you can sail in any direction except directly into the wind. Mm. Like, oh, huh, you can use whatever wind is there. Yeah. You can't go directly into it, but you can tack this way, that way, this. Right. So can you use like, is there a way that you can work together here, take on perhaps slightly different language? Sometimes it can be christened. Sometimes you just have to work together as much as you can. Yeah. I don't know. I suppose that's the way that metaphor went. I should probably sail sometime.
1: I don't understand it better. It's the notion that, did they forget that at one time, was it the Christmas tree was a pagan symbol? Sure. Right. So somehow it couldn't be then Christianized, Mm. you know? And then by, by saying that, they're actually saying that there is a place where our value or perspective cannot go. Mm. And I think, of course, we're supposed to go there. We're supposed to remember and help remind that the whole purpose of this is the dignity of the human person. It's, you know, how we can get involved in talks about economics to remind people that the economy exists to serve the human person not the other way around mm. right so how could we abandon something if we actually do think that it is aggressively anti-christian and it's trying to deal with issues of justice how could we abandon that conversation i mean i just it just doesn't make sense to me as mm. a believer that we then say oh no they've got that we have nothing to say here about justice right. <laughs> right. you know please we that is all the more reason for us to be involved
0: well let's take this from the almost the complete opposite angle then. So some would be for purportedly Christian reasons suspicious of working with social movements whether it's Black Lives Matter or whatever mm-hmm. that they see as anti-religious and secular. Okay, so that's mm-hmm. from one side. On the other side there might be a full-throated critique of this coming from the church at all. On beh- like aren't isn't the church one of the bad actors ha. in history? Aren't Christians maybe especially in the United States, largely responsible for complicity with racist systems. So let me put it this way. Why bother with the church at all here?
1: Well, because we know our teachings are true and people are flawed. (laughs) There we go. I mean, that to me is like, yeah, people are flawed, but our teachings are true. Mm -hmm. And so since we have the benefit of hindsight and we've seen the errors, we can go forward not repeating those. But I, I think it would be, again, foolish to to jettison our perspectives as people of faith, our understanding of the truth of the human person, our understanding of justice, virtue, rights. It would be foolish of us to exit the conversation because of the failures of believers uh, before us.
0: Well, and that's really at the heart of this, right? The truth of the human person. As mm-hmm. you've said from the beginning, uh, that as Christians, we believe that everyone is created in the image of God. And I suppose at the heart of this all then is that truth that there is inherent dignity in every person and yes. that that, ought, that has to be not only respected, but revered yes, and promoted on individual personal levels, but also socially, how, I mean, how do you, as you think about this and you're involved in conversations with people inside the church, outside the church, how do we broaden the appreciation of the beauty and dignity of the human person, especially in a secular space where there's other ideas of what it means to be a human person?
1: Yeah, you know, I think we actually need to go at the heart of looking at the ugliest parts of our humanity. Ooh. I really do, because I think it, it challenges us to remember that even there we're still made in his image and likeness, even though we behave less than what God intended for us. And if we can go there and we can grapple with, even when we are at our ugliest, that we are still made in his image and likeness and there's a place for redemption, I think it changes conversations. So for example, you know, I know with the murder of George Floyd, there were, after his murder, there were a lot of people that were pointing to his past as a criminal and using that almost to say, well, we shouldn't have any sympathy for what happened with this person and whatnot. And I was like, no, it's just the opposite. Even though he did these things in the past, he still should not have been treated that way. No person should. Even a guilty person being apprehended by the police shouldn't be murdered, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's where we get challenged the most, on what we believe about the dignity of the human person. It's not in the sweet-faced, innocent baby, but sometimes it's in the person we fear. Sometimes it's in the person that's doing outright bad things that we, by reason and faith, are restrained out of love for God and for the dignity of the human person. It does not mean we expect an escape justice, but it does mean in the application of justice, we do not behave unjustly. <laughs> oh. And isn't that a like a challenge? I like that. So I think it's, I think that that actually is where we we need to go, mm-hmm. and where we need to really think and apply our beliefs.
0: This is Leonard DiLorenzo. Lorenzo. You're listening to Church Life today on the Spoke Street Media Network. I am joined today by Gloria Purvis, host of the Glorious Purvis podcast from America Media. Gloria is also the inaugural inaugural. Should be careful with that word, <laughs> inaugural. Pastor O'Fellow of the Notre Dame Office of Life and Human Dignity. That office is housed here in the McGrath Institute for Church Life. So, Gloria, we hear oftentimes on Catholic Twitter, I even hate that term, <laughs> yeah, but people I mean. use it. People know what I'm yes, talking about. Yes, Catholic yes. Twitter, yeah. other places, these vitriolic conversations is probably the only way we can describe them, oh, around yeah. language like with terms like woke, yeah. intersectionality, mm-hmm. identity politics. Mm-hmm. Is there a positive quality to these terms, to these ideas from a Catholic perspective?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's actually, as a Catholic, I'm really surprised of how these terms, people are being so derisive without even knowing what they mean. So I would say in the movement of racial justice, at least as my experience in a Black community wokeness, actually really just means being awake and sensitive to inequality, to the suffering of the other. And I'm awakened to it. I'm woke to it. And I'm alert about it. And I do something because I'm awakened. I'm woke about it. I see it. They're not blind. I'm not blind to their suffering. Mm. Okay. And identity politics actually has a very specific meaning. Actually, Black feminists in the 70s came up with the term identity politics to describe the type of politics that they were engaging in. And the reason these Black feminists had come together is they'd been a part of other liberation movements, and they found that they were never really central
0: Hmm. to
1: these movements for liberation. And they said, you know what? Nobody's going to be committed to our own liberation like we are. So we have a politics based on our identity, identity politics that is energized by love of ourselves that we realize black women have value. And in the 70s, they said, and our politic is one that's anti-racist and anti-sexist. Okay, way back in the 70s. So identity politics were really black women saying, we wanna work in ways to challenge ways in which we have been oppressed. And we're doing this because we love ourselves. And we love our identity as Black women, and this is what... So when you hear that, I'm like, what Christian can be opposed to understanding the impetus for that? We may not agree with how it played out, Mm -hmm. but to just derisively say identity politics is a problem doesn't make any sense to me. Also, because I'm like, the Civil Rights Movement was an identity politics movement. Religious liberty is an identity politics movement. And so I, I... I don't understand how Christians can speak so derisively about the term, given that it was a term that these women used to describe how and why they were working to end the things that were oppressing them. Now, intersectionality was actually coined maybe a decade later also by a Black woman who was a law professor, legal scholar, Kimberly Crenshaw, people probably familiar with her name. But anyway, she uh, came up with the term intersectionality because she saw in examining anti-discrimination law and its remedies that single-axis analysis were insufficient to address the situation of Black women who face both Discrimination on account of race and sex. Mm -hmm. And that it was insufficient to only look at sex because in the law, it was always looked at from the position of a white woman. It was insufficient to look at race because it was always looked at in the position of black men. And so an analysis that didn't look at the compound experience from race and sex together was a problem. So it's an intersectional analysis of anti-discrimination law and its remedies. That was the meaning of the term intersectionality. And so I'm like, I don't see the problem here. It was a framework to, to come to how can we best ameliorate the conditions of women, Black women, who were on more than one axis dealing with discrimination. And as Catholics, I'm like, don't we always talk about going to the margins? Right. And that's looking at who is affected in ways that we haven't considered, yeah, right? So we could bring them in. And Pope Francis talked about us going to the margins, serving people at the margins. And so having this intersectional view doesn't hurt. And it's been, actually, I would say something that's a bit of, brings me a bit of sadness, actually, when I see Catholics mock this, or people say things like, oh, it's the oppression Olympics. And I was like, why would we choose to be cruel about someone's suffering when we should have sympathy, empathy, compassion. And to use language that is just the opposite of that is, again, to me, the presence of the evil one, Mm. asking us as the human family to laugh at someone else's suffering, to mock their suffering, to not engage with their suffering because it might require something of me. Yeah. And um, that's, to me, the just the opposite of what our Lord would have us do.
0: Well, in, in your description of each of those terms, it sounded to me like you're, I mean, not to reduce it to this, but this is what I was hearing was, this is these are ways of seeing the other well, mm-hmm. or of presenting yourself well, mm-hmm. if you're the one who's not being seen. Mm-hmm. But I also think the kind of clarity and precision that you've just given to these terms yeah. is... Largely missing. And this is where, right? Yeah. And this is where the mischaracterizations and a lot of times the suspicion yeah. or anger towards these terms yeah. um, and those who speak them comes from. And to be honest, there's probably somebody, who, some who are using these categories and terms with other agendas attached to them. Sure, could be sure. So, you know, to go back to this point about the clarity of it, like, is this not part of Well, is it the church's responsibility? Is it our responsibility as responsible Christians to be able to provide clarity, even to these terms that haven't come out of the church?
1: Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that I I I was like, boy, if this mischaracterization of these terms isn't another, it's another example of how Black women's voices are ignored or silenced, Mm. and I'm like, why is that? Does it mean when someone is naming? their pain Mm -hmm. or naming a way in which they're trying to ameliorate their conditions and what they're doing isn't actually by naming these things actually fundamentally contrary to what we believe. I, I just don't see the problem. How else are we going to understand or address if we don't use language? Right. And the meaning of language is to convey truth. So the question is, did their identity politics, were they trying to name a truth in their experience? Yes, Was there anything contrary to saying that we are forming a politic around our identity as Black women so that we could best address the things that harm us as Black women? Okay. Is there something wrong with saying we're going to name this term so we have an analytical framework in looking at anti-discrimination law? I mean, legit. No. What's wrong with that? Then you have to say, what's wrong with actually having this analytical frame to look at other ways in which all of us, from our different perspectives need to come together, interact, or solve yeah. something like racial justice right. or these kinds of things. So yeah, I, I really just, I don't get it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get why the, I would say more than suspicion, I would say it's outright that this is the real evil, people will mm. say. And I'm like, but we're looking at problems mm. and we're looking at pain. How is that evil when we're trying to put a salve on it? We're trying to heal that wound. What's wrong with that?
0: Yeah. You know, I think of this fellowship that you're embarking on, and a portion of this fellowship will be dedicated to developing uh, resources for educators, for pastoral leaders. Sometimes it's about equipping them for better engagement and dialogue. Sometimes it's about this kind of education. So. This fellowship is ahead of you. I don't want to say like, tell us everything you're going to do because part of it is planning this, but at least speaking in broad terms, perhaps, Mm. generally speaking, what are some of your hopes for what you would like to provide or help teachers with or pastoral leaders?
1: Well, helping people see our common humanity, our common ancestors, God, for helping people recovering a sense of the human family, right? For helping people understand that the effects of a sin cannot live the person that committed the sin for helping people understand that there is something, a structure of sin called systemic racism. And what is that? Helping people understand that and helping people understand the deeply spiritual nature of this work, that this is not something that can be done, acted on, in my perspective as a believing Catholic, outside of God. Hmm. Otherwise, it's just some... I, what is why why would we even bother with this if we didn't have this belief in god you know to me anyway i i would not want to undergo any of the struggle <laughs> you know if i didn't believe in god if i didn't believe there was a truth about the dignity of the human person because this is can be painful work this can be painful subject to deal with it can be an extremely painful ugly history to encounter and when you deal with looking at evil that much, you need to be able to gaze beyond that into the beauty of the Lord. That is what is going to sustain you in this. With all the abuse, because there's a lot of abuse that comes. I can speak personally that you receive a lot of abuse from places you never expect, from your co-religionists that want to make you believe that you're not really Catholic or all this. You have to be able to withstand some of those attacks. And the only way you can do it is if you are firmly rooted in God. And sometimes those attacks do take the spiritual that you may, it may have some negative economic consequence. Mm -hmm. And you have to, if you are not rooted in God, you will crumble in this. You just will. And that's because you are dealing with the, the forces of evil. When you are trying to, reconnect the human family and the enemy of the human person is has been working for centuries since the beginning to separate us, you can't be naive about what's involved. And this is where also for people to understand detachment, I think is one of my goals, really to help people understand detachment. And I think of scripture where the rich young man goes up to the Lord and says, Lord, I want to follow you. What do I have to do to be perfect? And he's like, sell all you have and come back. And my man is like, Oh man, I, I kind of like all <laughs> this stuff, right? And so we are kind of like that rich young man, mm. and we have to be tat- detached from whatever it is that's really keeping us from following God perfectly. And in this case of racial justice, we need to really do that examination of ourselves. What are the things that we're holding on to that is blinding us from being able to see the human family as God intended?
0: Mm. I wonder if I can ask you, I mean, you said you've known some of this, the cost of this. Oh, yeah. In the last, especially in the last few years, and I think some oh, of yeah. this has been mm-hmm. pu- more or less public. Can mm-hmm. you speak a little bit to that, what it's like to absorb, to face some of the cost of yeah. holding to the truth as you've sought to do?
1: Um, I think it's most shocking when it's people you thought, understood, and firmly believed in the dignity of the human person, and when you are lauded for talking about the dignity of the human person vis-a-vis life in the womb.
0: Which you speak on behalf of all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah absolutely, I mean, right.
1: right? Absolutely, yes. But then to still then apply that to something between the womb and between the tomb, I'm like, yeah, if we believe it from the womb to the tomb, it also means in between. But then to talk about it in the area of racism and then see all these people turn. Mm to see all these people not just turn, but then want to hurt you. They want to hurt you financially. They want to hurt you reputationally. And it's, it's bewildering because these are fellow believers, fellow believers who self-identify as serious Catholics. And so then when you see, oh, my gosh, this is still a place for us in the church where we need massive conversion. Mm -hmm. And the people who think they're already converted on everything are the ones still in need of it. And then you see them behave in the ways that are so contrary to what we profess, to what they profess. It's bewildering and it's heartbreaking. But then at the same time, I say to the Lord, strengthen me, help me. And I just submit my will. And I said, I just trust you, Lord. I don't know what the future's going to bring, but I'm just trusting you, Lord, here. And I'm not going to abandon you in face of these cruel things that are happening to me. the The, the hateful emails, the hateful direct messages on Twitter and Facebook, the cruel things that people will just say publicly to you or about you or how they'll just misrepresent what you say on purpose. I'm like, in, in good faith, I did not say that, but they will misrepresent it. Um, I've, I mean, the things that people have come on posts where people are talking about, oh, Gloria Purvis came to our school to talk about some of the, and, you know, people to join us, isn't she a Marxist? <laughs> isn't she, you know, one of those Black Lives Matter people that wants to overthrow the church and the family and all this kind of stuff? And none of that's true. Yeah, I mean that all that happens. I mean, and I had to get a security camera. We have security all around our house now because of the kinds of um email threats that I've received. Yeah.
0: Are you able to pray for those? Oh yeah. For them.
1: Oh yeah. You know, it's it's an it's so I say to people, sometimes God allows the very broken people to come to you so that you can see their woundedness. Mm. You could see the these snares, how they are trapped in the snares of the enemy. And if something is trapped in a snare, you need to be gentle with it. Hmm. You really do. If you were to get it out of the snare in a way that it is undamaged. And for me, I understand that that has to be prayer, and in some cases, fasting, because there are no words that they can hear.
0: So prayer and fasting on your part.
1: Yes, of course. For them. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For
0: those who have hurled all sorts of nastiness against you and sought to hurt you.
1: Yes, yes, because they are trapped in the snares of the enemy, Mm -hmm. right? And this is where I also think people need to realize when you are in this work, you cannot. Forget all that. Like, I, I can't describe it other than. Being okay with these assaults. I mean, I'm not saying, yeah, please do this. But you're not so much focused on the harm that it does to you as much as you're thinking about how harmed they really are. It's harming them for what they're doing to you. Yes. Or what they're seeking to do. Yes, because it is so contrary to who they are, especially because they have professed this belief in Jesus Christ and to do these things without a pang of conscience and then to go to Mass on Sunday and receive our Lord, the great harm they're doing to themselves. And they don't even see it. And there's no amount of reasonable words that I could say because they just simply do not hear me because of the snares that they're trapped and they cannot hear me. But that does not mean they are beyond conversion and sometimes the scripture said some demons only come out through prayer and fasting and i sometimes laugh because i'm like lord you know that's difficult you know (laughs) you know because i'm not saying that i necessarily like you know this stuff or that i'm you know liking this person at that moment but that's irrelevant my emotions on it are irrelevant and that's one of the things that you learn emotions are fleeting Mm -hmm. they come and they go and they change but the truth remains yeah and so once you look at the truth And you embrace the truth and you understand the truth, regardless of how you feel, you will march in the path of the Lord. And so it is doing that loving thing of praying and fasting, because I think about what Jesus did for me when I was still his enemy, when I am still his enemy, when I choose sin. He died on the cross for me that I may have a chance at heaven. Who am I to then, (laughs) I I, almost laugh at it, who am I to then refuse to do a kindness, a spiritual kindness for someone who perceives themselves to be my enemy or that they think I am their enemy and they want to harm me. I need to follow the pattern of the Lord who I say I love, who I have this relationship with in prayer. And it's not about what you prefer doing. All that just is irrelevant. You know, your passion of liking or hating, or it's irrelevant. What is the truth and what does the truth call you to do? And you move forward in that.
0: Where did your Catholic faith come from? I just have to ask you.
1: <laughs> I'm a convert. Yeah. You know, so I I actually was the lone Catholic in my family. I converted at age twelve.
0: What led to that?
1: <laughs> I had a mystical experience at Eucharistic adoration as a child. You were going to
0: Eucharistic adoration when you were not Catholic.
1: Yeah, because, well, I went to a Catholic school. Long story short, we were on punishment. The principal, (laughs) whose religious sister, was like (laughs) losing her mind because we had done something she didn't appreciate. So she made us all go with her to adoration. So while she's out there working it out with Jesus and we're sitting there holding our breath hoping we'll stay alive, I had an experience. And this experience just changed me and I just knew through and through that I was supposed to be a Catholic and so I went to the religious sister when she came to my class and said you know I gotta get the Catholics for confirmation I said sister I'm supposed to be a Catholic and she was like "Uh uh-uh honey you go home and ask your parents permission so I went home and I did just the opposite I informed them that I was becoming a Catholic and I was 12 years old I think about this and through God's grace my parents were like okay you're going to go to Mass every Sunday, Holy Day of Obligation, pray that rosary, and you're not eating meat on Fridays. <laughs> you're going to be
0: all in in other yeah, 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 right. yeah,
1: yeah. And that was it. I mean, yeah. they literally dropped me off to Mass by myself as a 12-year-old. And so I had just, yeah, that's where my faith came from, from that mystical experience of that immediate knowing that that was real, true, and alive. In the monstrance, I don't have the the theological words to explain, but just the immediate knowing. And at the same time that I had this immediate knowing, my body was engulfed in flames and I was on fire. I mean, I knew I was on fire, but at the same time, not pain and not the pain of not burning. It's hard to describe. I still remember the sensation. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, just this immediate knowledge that that was alive and real And I don't want to say a person because I don't know if that's the theologically right way of saying it, but I knew that was Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I say this because, oh, please, listener, don't think I'm some super special. No, it's God's generosity to a very broken soul. I think I know he saw that this is the only way this girl is going to wake up. I need to do something special to intervene. And it is a sign of my brokenness because I don't want people to hear this and say, oh, she's this saint and all this. I struggle just like you every day, just like you. And I think he did this as a reminder that I could never be deceived about who he is and who the church is. That I could never look at the brokenness of somebody else as an excuse to abandon him. And so that's where my faith came from. And just the practice of it, I guess, just, you know, living life and encountering situations as I grew up as an adult and then experiencing a mystical chastisement late much later on in life. When I was uh, married, um, I had a moment right after we were saying the creed at mass and the Lord gave me a very small mini chastisement, but believe me, you don't want it. And it was um, as a result of that that I was like, well, okay. Well, then what exactly does the church teach on these issues? It's not that I didn't believe, but I didn't engage deeply with what the church was uh, teaching. And I wasn't living contrary to what the church said, but I just was a comfortable in the pew Catholic, and that's insufficient. And so I would say it's these struggles with life and all the issues out there in the world and understanding the faith and loving the Lord is where my faith has come from, I guess. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, thank you. Oh, sorry for for such a long answer. No, no, no. I asked a big (laughs) question. I mean, that's a question that goes to the root and you you answered from the root. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Well, Gloria, I think... I've asked you enough for now. Thanks, Lenny. Um, I hope that you will we'll be able to have another conversation sure. here at some point. This is our third, and each of them has been really good. Thank you so oh, much.
1: Thank you. And
0: thanks to all of you for joining us here on Church Life Today. You can check out some of Gloria's work, of course, on her podcast, the Gloria Purvis podcast, which is available from America Media. And check out, follow her work as a pastoral fellow for the Notre Dame Office of Life and Human Dignity, which is housed here in the McGrath Institute for Church Life throughout the year. Thanks again, Gloria, and Thank thanks you. to all of you for joining us. Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame, and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and
1: our listeners.
0: Elevate 150 Financial Checkups at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Here's how it works. Go online and schedule a 30-minute phone call. They'll guide you through your credit report to find ways to improve your financial health. Then they'll send $150 in your name to Redeemer Radio. For information, visit NotreDameFCU.com slash elevate. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame, FCU.